Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Falgach. Joining me today is historian Dr. Wendy Goldman to talk about her book, Inventing the Enemy, Denunciation and Terror in Stalin's Russia. Dr. Goldman is a Soviet historian at Carnegie Mellon University, and in this book, Dr. Goldman adds to the scholarship on the terror. The terror was a period of mass repression that swept the Soviet Union between the years 1936 and 1939. As news of domestic enemies dominated the press, workers joined the state in the hunt for enemies. In this account, Dr. Goldman takes us to the factories and textile shops to demonstrate the terror in action. The book features not only a concise historiography of the terror, but also a view of the terror from below. And joining me now is Dr. Wendy Goldman. And welcome to New Books Network, Wendy. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Wendy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then how you came to write this book? Well, I'm 57 years old, and I was born in New York City. I became very interested in left-wing politics as a young person, and I would say that my interest in left-wing politics is what led me to my scholarship on the Soviet Union. I attended Cornell University as an undergraduate, where I received a Bachelor of Science degree in Industrial and Labor Relations, so I've always been interested in workers and industry and questions of labor. And then I went on to work for a union in the South, and after I did that, I decided I wanted to go back to school, and I went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, and I decided that I wanted to do my work on the Soviet Union. So this necessitated a leap into the Russian language, which was not an easy thing for me. Uh, And I began uh, my studies at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had the good fortune to be sent uh, as part of an IREX exchange that was International Relations and Exchanges Board to the Soviet Union for a year in 1984-1985, where I did my research. And at that time, other than tourists, there were almost no people in the Soviet Union from the West who were living there. And we lived at Moscow State University, and I got to know many different people. And it was an absolutely fascinating immersion in a country that was very, very different from our own. I wrote this book uh, after writing a number of other books on the 1920s and the 1930s. I had previously written on industrialization in the 1930s, and this book was the result of some very interesting sources that I discovered in the course of my research on industrialization. I had gotten into some sources in the archive of the um, Communist Party of Moscow, and I realized that it was very possible through looking at these sources to examine what was going on in the factories themselves. And the book was actually the result of a sort of serendipitous discovery. I ordered some materials in the archive from several factories from the year 1937. And this, as your listeners may know, was the year that is synonymous with what we call the Great Terror in the Soviet Union. I was curious to see what was going on in the factories in that year. And the archivist brought me a stack of folders, which I opened up, and I was absolutely shocked at their contents. What I saw were stenographic reports of meetings in the factories of the party committee, which was a group of about, oh, 10 to maybe 20 people representing 
many, many different groups within the factory, from workers to shop heads to engineers to the director himself. And in these meetings, they were discussing a whole variety of political questions relating to their own political purity. And there were uh, discussions over expulsions and arrests and other things. And what I realized was that it was possible to actually follow these stenographic reports over a number of years, so years preceding 1937 and then going into 1938 and 1939, and to actually trace the development of the terror on a personal level within the factories. And when I realized that this was possible to do, I became very excited. And I decided that this would become my new project. So I began ordering these stenographic reports of the party committees from various factories. And I was not always able to get a full run. At that time, there were a lot of folders that uh, were not um, had not been declassified, and I was not allowed to see. But I was able to get enough of a good run to actually get to know people in the factories personally, despite the fact, of course, that they were all long dead. It was literally like sitting at the meetings with them. And I came to know them. I came to see what uh, secrets they were concealing. I was able to go back and reread meetings from 1936 with knowledge that I then gained in 1937 and 1938, and to develop a picture of the terror on a micro level. Then I realized that I could go even deeper. Most of the factories had factory newspapers, and the factory newspapers were dailies. And they have an enormous amount of material about what's going on in the factories on a daily basis. So they have material about arrests. They had material about large meetings. They had material about discussions. And they also have articles that foreshadow the arrests of people. So, for example, there would be very splashy headlines throughout 1937 and 1938 wanting to know what sort of uh, criminal wrecking was going on in the rolling mill or in another shop. And that usually presaged the arrest of the head of the rolling mill or the other shops. Uh, it could presage the arrest of then a whole set of people that were connected with him or her. So people generally had subordinates, and they also had people that were above them. And when a person was arrested, their subordinates and the people above them would then be required to explain how it was they had not recognized a wrecker and an enemy in their midst. And they would have to give an explanation for why they had not, quote, unmasked this person. So we can also see how the terror works in terms of how it spreads outward. You can think of it as um, a wheel with a hub, and the hub is the arrested person. And then every arrested person has many uh, acquaintances, friends, family members, as well as co-workers, subordinates, and people above them, who would then also be drawn into the terror network. So this was the way I began first uh, working on this, and I paired the material in the daily factory newspapers with the stenographic reports, and I was able to reconstruct a kind of micro-history of the terror in five Moscow factories. In your introduction, you write that this is a, a micro-history of the terror. And you also write that previous history that written about the terror was more about the politics and the, the role of Stalin and the Stalin regime in the terror. Could you tell us how this contradicts and how this complements existing literature on the terror? Well, that's a very good question, because... 
the book is not just a micro history of the terror, but the micro history really influences our larger understanding of what happened in those years. So let me just step back a little and talk about various interpretations of the terror, of which there are many, and then talk a little bit about how the book fits in with or influences, contradicts some of these various interpretations. One view of events in those years is become known as a, a totalitarian view. And this idea is essentially that uh, Stalin masterminded the terror with the aim of achieving a totalizing control over society. Now, this view has its proponents on both the right and on the left of the political spectrum, but its central thesis is that the Soviet Union became a society in which total control was exercised over the people, and the people essentially were passive victims of the leadership. The right-wing view holds that the terror was essential to control because communism cannot exist in any democratic form and that communism or socialism will always go hand in hand with totalizing control of society. The left-wing view of what we might call the totalitarian thesis is that Stalin was out to destroy the democratic socialist opposition as represented by a variety of different leading figures. Some believe that Trotsky was among that group, others that Bukharin was among that group, but that there was a real democratic socialist alternative to Stalin and that the essence of Stalinism was to destroy democratic socialism. Another view, which I think is quite similar to the totalitarian view, although it's really neither of the right nor of the left, is that most of the executions and arrests in the period from 1936 to 1939 were a form of what's called excisionary violence. This was terror, again, exercised solely from above, and aimed at certain population categories within the country. So, for example, we have information now that's come to light about the mass and national operations, which were launched in the summer of 1937, in which set categories of people were actually targeted for arrest, and target numbers were set for every category. Some of those categories included recidivist criminals, people who had uh, previously um, class backgrounds uh, that were from the old regime, known as buivshiludi, or former people. That would include, let's say, former aristocrats, priests, industrialists, uh, former kulaks. That these people also were targeted. And other groups as well. In the national operations, there were a variety of immigrant groups and nationalities that were targeted who were seen as potentially disloyal in the event of war. So this view of the terror puts a lot of emphasis on the mass and national operations and not so much on the political culture of the country. Then there are other views that put emphasis on internal tensions within the country that help to fuel the terror, such as it tensions created by very rapid industrialization and collectivization, which created large categories of people in the country who were dissatisfied with the Soviet leadership. And in that sense, it looks at these kind of tensions that were created, social tensions, in the previous decade and tries to understand the relationship between those and the violence in 1937-1938. 
And then finally, there are historians that put a great deal of emphasis on the international situation. And they argue that the rise of fascism, the defeat in Spain, and other factors external to the country had a large effect on the leadership, which to some degree became panicked and was very concerned to clean out any elements within society that they thought might prove a danger in the event of fascist attack. So that gives you a kind of idea of the broad spectrum of different interpretations and approaches to the terror. So how would, let's say, a micro-history help us to uh, add to this or in some way to influence uh, how we understand this historiography? I would say that my work uh, helps do this in a few ways. First, by showing the political culture within the factories, it shows that there was a widespread culture of denunciation at political meetings, both party and non-party, that affected social and work relations at every level. So what we see here is not simply Stalin acting against a victimized and helpless population, but what we see is people at many, many levels, from the directors of factories to engineers to shop heads to foremen, down even to workers, involved in a very active process of meetings and political denunciations that helped to fuel the arrests and the terror. So in that sense, I think my work brings in an element of mass participation, which previously was very hard to document. We can find that element of mass participation in many novels. So for example, there is a wonderful book um, by Sofia, uh, by Lydia Chukovskaya called Sofia Petrovna. And in it, she tells the story of a simple, ordinary woman and how she experiences the terror. And in that novel, we can definitely find the mass participation that I was able to document. But Sofia Petrovna is a novel, and it's not history. So in that sense, uh, I think that the work is important in adding a whole other component to our understanding of what was going on. The second way I think it strongly affects the larger set of interpretations is that it shows that there was not a clear line between excisionary violence, which was aimed at certain very specific categories, and people who were outside of those categories. So in a chapter that I wrote on the family, where I looked at family ties and the ways in which they pulled people into the terror, you can see that within any family, if we take, uh, let's say, a single member who is a worker, perhaps with an impeccable proletarian biography, who would not in and of himself be targeted by either the mass or national operations, what we see is that this person, if we embed him in his family, we see that within that family, he may have had a brother who was active in 1927 in the Trotskyist opposition. We may find a father or an uncle or a grandfather who was exiled in 1929, 1930, for being a kulak. We may find a Latvian wife, a group that was, Latvians were targeted as part of the national operations. So if you look at the family, one of the things that you see is that no Soviet family was A, either pure 
in some constructed biographical sense or untouched by the categories, disconnected from the categories of excisionary violence. And this is one of the very interesting things I think that happens when rather than just looking at top-down orders, which show you, let's say, discrete categories for arrest and execution, you instead explore the people that in fact were arrested and executed as embedded within families and see that they were not islands living alone and isolated, but in fact had family members of all different types. They had social ties and work ties of many types, and many people were then brought into the terror and themselves arrested because of something called associational ties. So, for example, one chapter, which I called Love, Loyalty, and Betrayal, is the story of three people. One of them is Alexander Somov. He was the head of the party committee in Serpimolet, or Hammer and Sickle, which was a big steel factory that still exists in Moscow and has a storied revolutionary history. Actually, almost the entire history of the Soviet Union uh, and of Russia can be read through Serp Imolet. So Samov was the head of the party committee uh, of Serp Imolet, and he himself had an impeccable proletarian biography as constructed by the state. He had gone to work as a teenager in Serp Imolet. He was a worker. His father was a worker. He came from a long line of workers, which was something that was particularly prized by the Soviet state, what they called a dynasty of workers. He was loyal. He received an education uh, under uh, the Soviet system. He was proud of that education. He had served in the Red Army. And he came of age uh, right at the time of the terror. So he was a product, a true product, in many, many positive senses of the Soviet educational and upward mobility experience of the 1930s. Samov became romantically involved with a young Polish woman who had fled Poland, fled fascism and the arrests in Poland, and come to the Soviet Union. She, too, was a communist, and she went to work in Serpy Mullet, and they became involved with each other. She was later arrested in the national operations, and at that point, Samov was subjected to a harrowing set of interrogations because of his involvement with her. He was ultimately expelled from the party as a result, and she was either uh, executed or sent to the camps after her long experience of interrogation in prison. So when we take a look at Alexander Somov and Esvir Kurvitskaya, these are two people whose names are virtually unknown. They're not famous. They weren't leaders. They're not famous cultural figures. And yet at the same time, what we see here is one, a victim of what we might see purely as excisionary violence, actually helps to pull in to the terror net someone who had an impeccable proletarian biography. And that happens all over the country. So in this sense, I think by looking at actual personal relationships and family relationships, which I was able to reconstruct through the microhistory, we get a very different view of the terror, one that's not top-down, although certainly these top-down orders were critical and very important, and in no way must we take the blame off of the Soviet leadership and Stalin. But what we also see is a widespread political culture of participation, 
And if you like, I can talk a little bit about more about that culture. Your sources tell of a very turbulent landscape in the shop floors, especially in the shop floors, which is where uh, the Soviet industry was growing. So could you please take us to the shop floors, maybe 1937? And what was it like to be a co-worker in one of these large factories? And since so many people met their fate with the terror, how did people save face? And how did people protect themselves during the terror uh, on the shop floors and in other factories? Could you please tell us some more about that? Well, let's start broad and then let's move in uh, and narrow into the factories and then the shop floors. Starting broad, the 1930s had been a decade of stormy industrialization. It was planned, and every factory had a target program that it had to meet in terms of output. That target program was broken down to the shops for individual subsets of target programs that they in turn had to meet in terms of output. So people were under a great deal of pressure to produce and to meet these targets. And that pressure in and of itself created the possibility of a lot of blame that would be thrown around for why it had not been possible for any particular shop or factory to meet its targets. So let's just say we have that as a um, broad backdrop to the terror. That in itself was not a, would not in and of itself produce the terror. But let's just say that's a kind of backdrop. If we now move a bit closer uh, toward the factories in the uh, in 1936, one of the things that we see is that after the Kirov murder, which occurred in December of 1934, there were a widening set of political arrests that were going on. So a variety of primarily left oppositionists were being arrested. In the summer of 1936, there was the first major Moscow show trial of people who had been leading party figures, revolutionaries, who were then accused of trying to assassinate Stalin, of conspiring against the state, and also of what became known as wrecking. That trial was broadcast into all the factories. People listened to it on these radio tochki or radio points that were strung up in the shops. They heard the trial being broadcast. There were huge political discussions of the trial. But at that time, nobody in the shops, either workers or foremen or shop heads or directors, believed that what was going on in the Moscow trial really had anything to do with the factory. So in other words, those were seen as two separate things. In the fall of 1936, after the trial was over, and so many of these leading revolutionaries had been executed, there was a set of events that came to change that. There was a set of explosions in the mines in the east, And at that point, there was a smaller show trial that was covered in all the newspapers, although it was not covered by the international press, in the Kemerova mines, in which mine directors and mine pit bosses and others, many of whom had oppositionist backgrounds, they were former Trotskyists, now working in industry, were accused of deliberately creating explosions, of wrecking, in Russian, of trying to turn the working class against the Soviet leadership. Now, there were many explosions in the mines, and these usually had not been covered by the press. They were not the result of deliberate wrecking. What they were the result of was safety failures, pressure to produce, pressure to produce and as a result to ignore shoring up of the pits and the tunnels and proper measures of air quality. All of these things had led to fatalities. 
workers were furious and upset about this. But this was not the result of deliberate wrecking. Once that term, however, was introduced into the factories and the industrial enterprises, it became very easy for a variety of groups who were differently positioned in the factories to use wrecking as a way to either cover up their own mistakes or advance their own causes. So, for example, workers who previously had tried to draw attention to the lack of safety regulations and violations that were going on in the factories and in the mines because of this enormous pressure to produce, now found that although their previous complaints had not gained any attention, if they mentioned the word wrecker or Trotskyist or political crime, there was immediate attention from the local party officials to what was going on. So workers had an interest in this, and they quickly learned to use the necessary language, political language, to bring attention to problems that they felt uh, should be rectified. Shop heads also had a great interest in this, and they could use wrecking to explain problems in their shops. So why weren't they producing according to plan? There was wrecking. Why had there been a huge chemical accident? Wrecking. Why was there a fire? Wrecking. Why had so many items been produced that were faulty and could not be used uh, by another shop? Wrecking. So this term quickly caught on within the factories as a way of, let's say, either covering up or advancing a variety of agendas. Now, if we come down to the shop floor level, which you asked me to do, and enter a shop in 1937 on any given morning, we can pick up a copy of our factory newspaper. So if we are a worker entering the shop uh, early morning, coming in for our first shift, we pick up a copy of the factory newspaper. And what do we see to our immense glee? We see the head of our shop now being smeared across the headlines of this newspaper, and it is being claimed that he should be investigated for wrecking. From the worker's point of view, watching this was something that must have been met with a combination, uh, at least at first, of utter astonishment and amusement. This idea that day after day, the headlines were simply uh, scapegoating one after another all of their bosses and largely for infractions and problems that they had been complaining about steadily to their unions with absolutely no response. So right from the beginning, I think we could say our factories are tinderboxes. All they need is a few sparks to be set off, and the conditions exist now for people to turn quite seriously against one another. I should say that the workers did not remain amused in any way because they themselves also were drawn into this. And I can just give you an example. Uh, the textile uh, factory that I looked at was um, had a number of women workers. Uh, the textile industry was an industry that was uh, primarily female on the shop floor. And Within the party committee, you can see uh, women discussing a whole set of problems and also, uh, in essence, turning against each other. So what we have are cases, uh, one woman in particular, I remember, her husband uh, worked on the railways. There had been an accident. He was immediately arrested. And then she was called to account 
a simple textile worker before the party committee to explain how it was she had lived with an enemy who had been arrested and she had never reported him to the party. And she was then forced to denounce her husband and to explain to everyone why she had failed to recognize that she was living in such intimate proximity with an enemy. I will say to her credit, she absolutely refused to denounce him. She was one of the few figures, this simple working class woman, communist, was one of the few people that I found who publicly was able to stand up and say, I will not renounce this man, the father of my children, who always encouraged me to study. So there were a few people who stood up against this, but by and large, the pressures were so great on people from all walks of life that it became almost impossible for people to publicly say, I stand by even a loved one uh, who had been arrested. Wendy, in your book, you write a lot about the phenomenon of denunciation and also the thing you, you call as preemptive strikes in these denunciations. These preemptive strikes were meant to denounce someone before you were yourself denounced. And we often see that these were very complex and that uh, they often backfired. Could you please tell more, more about uh, these, this phenomenon? I was very interested in the psychological and social dynamics of the meetings as they evolved over time. This was something that really fascinated me. And because I was reading stenographic reports, which are literally the word-by-word summary of what any speaker says, it was really possible to get to know people over time. You saw how they responded to things. You watched how they responded to others. Uh, You could understand their relations with each other because the uh, stenographic reports, it's really like reading a play. And one of the things that I saw was that there were a whole variety of strategies that people adopted in order to protect themselves, which in essence were somewhat protective, but in protecting themselves, they also increased the possibility of arrests within the group as a whole. So let me give you some examples. All party members had to write something called a Zaivlenya, which we could translate roughly as declaration, if they knew of someone who was arrested, who was close to them. So in other words, if you had a teacher or a boss or a subordinate or a uncle or a child or a parent or a spouse who was arrested, you had to make a declaration to the party about that. You also had to make a declaration to the party about anybody that you thought was suspicious or anyone you suspected of wrecking or anyone you knew who had a background that was politically compromising. So, for example, let's say you had a sister who 10 years ago had been active in a student Trotskyist group, you were responsible for bringing that information forward. Now, no, most party members had some compromising elements within their histories. The revolutionary history of the past 20 years had been very complex, very turbulent, And people had some compromising elements. Not all, but many. Many people simply concealed that. So if you had an uncle, let's say, who had been arrested as a kulak, you put down your background when you had to fill out a form, a questionnaire, as peasant. Maybe 
middle peasant or even poor peasant, but you wouldn't necessarily mention this uncle. And so one of the things that begins to happen is that the party committees receive instructions from above, from the district and from the town committees, to begin investigating all of their members closely. When they do, they actually begin sending off for stenographic minutes from meetings that were held long ago, and they discover compromising material in many people's biographies, in their backgrounds. This is one of the things that then helps to fuel the terror. If, and here I come to your question about what I called preemptive zayavlenya, or preemptive declarations against another person. If you thought that someone was going to write against you, so for example, let's say there had been a problem between two engineers in a prototype shop where they were doing experiments with different locomotives. So it's just an example from one factory, Dynamo. The engineers have been involved in all kinds of very strong technical arguments. They were not politicized. They were technical. But if one engineer thought the other engineer might accuse him of some kind of political charge, in other words, where a technical argument then becomes politicized, he might decide, I better write something against this person before this person writes against me. So one of the things that I discovered in looking at the factories was that frequently people would write Zayavlenya against each other. Now, the Zayavlenya were secret. Sometimes they were sent to the party committee head. Sometimes they were sent to the district or the town party committee. Sometimes they were sent directly to the NKVD. But people were busy scribbling all kinds of Zayavlenya about suspicions they had about others. Often two people would be working side by side, and each had written a Zayavlenya about the other, unbeknownst to each of them. So all of this now begins to spill out slowly at meetings as people are arrested and as we begin to see, look back over the history of the situation, we can see what was going on. These Zayavlenya also added to the arrests. So, for example, when people wrote directly to the NKVD, a Zayavlenya didn't always result in an arrest, but it likely fattened any dossier the NKVD might already, for whatever reason, have been keeping on that particular person. So in that sense, we see people fueling the terror on the local level with defensive strategies that were meant to protect themselves. In essence, they create a greater danger to the whole group. One other thing I should mention in this regard. Initially, silence was a great refuge for decent people. They didn't agree with what was going on. They knew they couldn't speak out, but they could remain silent and at least not contribute to the furor and the um, energetic unmasking of enemies which was going on at every meeting now. So they would just not participate. Over time, silence itself became impossible because people were charged with silence. They were asked, why did you remain silent in the discussion of this person who was then arrested by the NKVD. Why didn't you participate in the meeting? And they would then have to explain themselves. So over time, one of the things that we see happening at meetings is that silence is no longer a refuge. Everybody has to participate in some way, or else you're called to account. And if you're participating 
it means that the meeting becomes ever more intense, broad, participatory, and vigorous in terms of the unmasking or, quote, unmasking of enemies. And I will say that from the fall of 1936, pretty much through the spring of 1938, the party committees in the factories are occupied with little else than unmasking each other. This terror was the greatest blow against the communist movement in the 1930s that could have been imagined. It seems that for all the parties involved, the NKVD, the other policing forces, the shop workers, these denunciations were entirely unsustainable by 1938. So what do you see happening as the terror winds down towards the end of the decade? The terror begins to wind down for a variety of reasons. Uh, It starts to wind down, at least uh, within the Communist Party, in January of 1938. Now, through 1938, they're still involved in the national operations. So hundreds of thousands of people are still being arrested. But within the party itself, it's starting to wind down. So that when we think about the end to the terror, we need to think of it in phases. It comes to an end in phases. Just as it begins in phases, it ends in phases. And the first sign that it's slowing comes in January of 1938. The party actually uh, comes out with a statement that says that many honest communists have been denounced by overzealous people who are masquerading as decent communists, but in fact are masked enemies. So the most zealous, the most active denouncers are now being called to account for sending honest communists to prison and to their death. That begins to slow things down. However, the party also now instructs its local organizations to hunt out these overzealous denouncers, these ballers or screamers, as they were called, Krikuni, and to expel and arrest them. So this is what we might call the caboose on the terror train. The last people to be sent to the camps were NKVD officials on the local level who were accused of torturing and using excessive methods against people, along with communists on the local level who were accused of overzealous and lying denunciations against their comrades. And they too trundled off to the camps, along with the people now who they met there, who they themselves had denounced in the first place. And we actually have sometimes in some of the memoir literature examples of people ending up in the same area, uh, same camp, sometimes uh, same barrack of the victim and the perpetrator who has now become the victim. Uh, So that's sort of the the last group to go off uh, within the party it slowly begins to come to an end because the Communist Party had become a useless organization. It was involved completely with policing and denouncing internally, in other words, cannibalizing itself, and it had eaten itself out, so to speak, to the point where it could not get any other business done. It was not involved with production, It was not involved with mobilizing workers. It was not involved with running the factories. It was not involved with any of the important things that needed to be done to prepare for 
the war, which was looming. So by 1938, we have Hitler is marching east, and uh, one country after another is falling to a fascist onslaught. And the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, which should have been the greatest leader against fascism, instead is busy cannibalizing itself. So I think there was a point at which uh, even Stalin recognized that the organization had become paralyzed. And if this continued for much longer, they would be completely useless on uh, any number of levels in terms of fighting the real threat to humanity that needed to be fought. So there is that realization at the very top. The party had truly become paralyzed. It could not enroll new members. The reason being, everybody who applied to join the Communist Party needed to have at least two sponsors. But people could not find anybody to sponsor them because all the people within the party were terrified that if they extended their sponsorship to someone who was then arrested, they themselves would be arrested because they had vouched for someone who was an enemy. So people were so afraid of helping each other, of sponsoring each other, of promoting each other in any way that the party had become frozen. In a sense, we can think of it as the truest spirit of comradeship in the broadest sense had been completely destroyed. Certainly a very ironic end to the terror. And Wendy, before we let you go here, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what you're working on now, your current projects? I'm now working on a history of the home front in the Soviet Union during World War II. And this is a great story that has a wonderful source base, but has really yet to be told. Uh, Right now, I'm actually in the midst of working on two big chapters on the evacuation of the industrial base from the west to the east. This is a feat that was unprecedented in human history. The uh, Soviet Union managed to evacuate over 17 million people and uh, close to 2,000 industrial enterprises, in some cases literally under a hail of German bombs, uh, one or two days uh, and sometimes hours before the Nazis actually marched in. And so this is the beginning of this story, and uh, it's uh, quite a tale to be told. Thank you again for listening. This has been a presentation of New Books Network, and we interviewed Dr. Wendy Goldman on her book, Inventing the Enemy, Denunciation and Terror in Stalin's Russia. I'm Philip Volgach, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.